Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Anna Carter Florence, Associate Minister at the Church, moderator of today's forum, and our guest is Dr. Barry Commoner, Director of the Center for the Biology of Natural Systems at Queens College and our country's most respected environmentalist. Long before the American public was talking about incinerators, recycling, industrial waste, and air pollution, Dr. Commoner was speaking and writing about these topics and how they affect our environment. His many books, which include Science and Survival, first published in 1966, The Closing Circle, 1971, and most recently, Making Peace with the Planet in 1990, have become bestsellers. Dr. Carmener argues that as a nation, we have failed in our efforts to restore the environment, that the natural ecosphere and the human technosphere are at war with one another, but that the situation is not hopeless. Today, he will offer us some solid, affordable strategies for making peace with the planet and with one another, speaking to the title, The Environment and the Economy, What Works? Dr. Commoner, we are honored to have you with us today, and we look forward to what you have to say to us. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I'm glad to be here in Minneapolis uh, during this interesting political season uh, when we uh, have all been entertained repeatedly uh, by debates that are simply TV performances. Um, I thought a debate was when uh, two people took each other on looked each other in the eye, and argued. Now, of course, <clears throat> you have to have somebody with nicely coiffed hair uh, in between. Well, the campaign is really something that we have to think about very seriously because what we've been hearing is that there are a lot of problems in the country, and at the same time, we're told there are conflicts between different problems. I'm interested in the environment. What you hear during the campaign about the environment is very little. I noticed in the paper today that uh, Mr. Gore just spoke in New Jersey and uh, for the first time really talked about the environment. And people said, well, why are you keeping quiet? And uh, some people speculated that it was because of a conflict between the environment and the big issue in the campaign, which is the economy. And of course, we've heard over and over again that you have to choose between the quality of the environment and jobs. And you remember that not long ago, uh, Mr. Bush was in uh, the Northwest opting for the timber industry as against the spotted owl. In other words, we are being told that you've got to choose between uh, being able to breathe properly or to have a job. Well, I want to tell you the conclusion of my talk and then I'll try to prove that I know what I'm saying. 
What I'm going to show you is that if we properly understand the environmental problem, we can learn how to improve the economy. That there is not a fundamental conflict between the environment and the economy. In fact, the two work together. The only way I know of improving the environment is to simultaneously improve the economy. Now, that's a tall order. Uh, let me explain why I've arrived at that conclusion. I got at it by looking at the history of our attempt to improve the environment. You know, for 20 years now, we have had numerous laws. We have spent an enormous amount of money. It's, it's hard to realize. We have spent over $1 trillion in the last 20 years of public and private money simply to try to improve the environment. Uh, the military budget is a big figure, yes? $300 billion. This year, we are spending about a third of that, $130 billion simply on the environment. And you have to ask yourself, are we getting our money's worth? Are we really getting environmental improvement commensurate with this enormous effort? And there are ways of answering that question. Because one of the accomplishments of the environmental effort that the country has made is that we know a lot more about the environment now than we did 20 years ago. And so, for example, EPA puts out every year an estimate of the load of pollutants that we put into the air uh, in that year. And these pollutants are things we breathe. Carbon monoxide from cars, nitrogen oxides which trigger smog and ozone production, a sulfur dioxide which leads to acid rain, dust, and so on. Well, if we look at the numbers and ask ourselves how much improvement has there been in the amount of these pollutants injected into the air since, let's say, 1975, when the measurements uh, really began in earnest, what we discover is that um, only about an 18% improvement has occurred. And in fact, if you look at the data year by year, you discover that most of the improvement stopped in 1982, so that clearly we haven't done what we set out to do. Now, my approach to that kind of situation is to ask, why? Why did we fail to really accomplish what our first law, the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, called for, which was to prevent and eliminate pollution? That's in the opening paragraph of, the, of that law. Well, the way we get at it is to ask, well, how did we try to accomplish the improvement? And it turns out that a very particular strategy has been followed. Uh, you can see it on the, uh, on the whole business of pollution from automobiles. Automobiles put all these nasty things out of their exhaust. Well, what did we do about that? 
the EPA studied the problem and then mandated that the manufacturers in Detroit must put on the tailpipe a device, the catalytic converter, which is supposed to destroy the pollutants before they get out of the exhaust pipe. And we all, every American car now has to have uh, that device on it. In other words, uh, we employed a strategy of allowing the car, the power plant, the farm, to produce its pollutant. Then we try to recapture it with a scrubber on the power plant and the catalytic converter on the car. That has failed. It has failed to accomplish what we set out to do. And again, you have to ask, why did it fail? Well, let me explain to you a little bit about the science of a control device. A control device, let's say, is uh, a pipe with some chemicals in it, which will destroy, let's say, carbon monoxide when it comes in contact with it. And uh, what you do is put the exhaust in one end and out the other end, you get less of it. It turns out, just from the physics and chemistry of this sort of thing, that it becomes progressively more expensive when you try to get a larger and larger percentage of the pollutant uh, destroyed. Uh, let me give you a, a couple of numbers. Uh, there are devices now which you're supposed to put on a power plant to recapture sulfur dioxide, the thing that causes uh, so much of acid rain. And there have been very careful studies of how much of the, car of the sulfur dioxide can be removed per dollar spent on the control device. And let me give you a couple of numbers. It costs $50 per kilowatt of, of capacity of the power plant to get to 75% reduction in uh, sulfur emissions. To get to 95%, it costs $2,200. And you can take the data and do a mathematical extension, and you discover that to get to 100% removal, it would cost $4,270 per kilowatt of capacity. That is 10 times the cost of the power plant. In other words, it can't be done. There is a limit to the efficiency of a control device that is imposed by the rapidly escalating cost as you try to make it get close to perfection. The result is there is a conflict between the economy and environmental improvement. You see, what it says is you can't afford to go beyond a certain degree of improvement if you're using a control device. So the fact that we have used control devices to improve the environment has created a conflict with the economy. And there are other conflicts. Um, take this fact. You cannot get 
to 100% efficiency with a control device. It is simply too expensive. So, all right, it's 90% efficient, 75% efficient. That means that, let's say, the car will continue to put out some carbon monoxide, some nitrogen oxide. Okay. But we keep driving more cars, more miles, every year. The result is, because the control device is not perfect, the more economic activity there is, the more people drive cars, the worse the environment becomes. Again, a conflict between the environment and the economy, which is a result of the peculiar property of control devices that you can't afford to have good ones. Now, what I'm saying then is, we have spent a trillion dollars doing the wrong thing. And you can also ask yourself, suppose that we use those trillion dollars to do something else. We failed with that. In other words, it's clear to see that we have made a mistake. Now, one of the things about public mistakes is they cause a lot of pain. And let me describe to you in a completely different area one of the terrible moral consequences of this strategic failure. Now, again, we're talking about control device. And what comes out of it, as I pointed out, is this that if you want to improve the environment, let's say save a certain number of lives from uh, uh, getting cancer, from environmental carcinogens, you will have to consider how much it costs to uh, put in place a control device sufficient to protect that many people. And an equation develops. It's called the cost-benefit equation. What does it cost in control expenditures to save a certain number of lives? And obviously, one of the things you try to do is to save as many lives as you can per dollar spent. Now, there is no way to solve that equation. If you remember your elementary algebra, if you have an equation that has dollars on one side and lives on the other, it can't be solved you'll have to have the same dimensions on both sides. Uh, you can have lives on one side and lives on the other, or dollars on one side and dollars on the other. And so, in order to work out what shall we do, how much money shall we spend on controls, it becomes necessary to put a dollar value on a human life. It's what the mathematics tells you. And there's an entire department of economics at the University of Chicago, full of Nobel laureates, that has devoted itself in the last 20 years to studying how valuable human life is. And their approach, and it's reasonable, is simply this. The value of a person's life is the expected lifetime income. That seems reasonable. Uh, that's what you represent in the economy, a certain income. And that can be calculated. When the calculations are done, it turns out that a woman's life is worth less than a man's. They earn less. A black person's life is worth less than a white person. And it turns out, generally, that poor 
Poor people are worth less than rich people. And uh, incidentally, I'm quoting now from scientific papers that are published. <laughs> now, all right. The message is delivered by the University of Chicago Department of Economics to EPA, and now they can go back to the equation. They say, okay, we now know the dollar value of the lives that are going to be saved by spending a certain amount of money on the control device, okay? You then solve the equation, and it turns out that it's okay to spend less money on the control device if the people are poor. It's mathematics. And you say, come on. You put this to a vote to the American people. Is it right to expose poor people to more environmental pollution than rich people? And everybody would say, of course not. That is exactly what we do. Where do you suppose a trash-burning incinerator is put in New York? On Park Avenue? No. It goes in Williamsburg in a black, Hispanic, and uh, Hasidic community. Poor people. Where are the toxic dumps in America? This has been studied. Most of them are right next to or in poor communities, generally black and Hispanic. In other words, this goes back again to the failure. The wrong strategy has brought us to a degraded moral position. So this is what we've done wrong. Now, is there a way of doing this right that is moral and won't result in a conflict with the economy? And the strange thing is that our experience over the last 20 years gives us the information we need to answer that question. I told you that when we look at the improvement in air pollutants, it's only 18% since 1975. But I left one thing out. Lead is also an air pollutant. And you look at those numbers, and it turns out that lead emissions have gone down by 95%. Now, that's right. We did something right. And if you look around carefully in the available statistics, you discover there's a handful of pollutants where we have really made progress. Lead is one of them. Another is DDT. DDT, for example, in birds and in our bodies, it's in mother's milk, has gone down about 70 or 80 percent. Uh, the chemicals called polychlorobiphenyls um, have gone down about the same amount. You look at this handful of, of real progress and you ask, well now, how did we do that? What, and you know, when I first got into these numbers, I wished for the first time in a long time that I was a graduate student again. Because the numbers are very interesting. Most pollutants we didn't do very well. A few we do very well, and if you're a graduate student, that's what you want. You want a, a set of numbers that will give you an answer, because you can then say, well, what did we do right, and what did we do wrong? And you can see yourself pronouncing a new law of environmentalism and getting your PhD and tenure on the spot. 
Well, let me tell you what the new law that this disparity between most pollutants and this handful um, tells us. The new law is this. If you don't put something into the environment, it's not there. That is exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what explains. Why is there less lead in the environment? We stopped putting it into the environment by taking it out of gasoline. When lead was in gasoline, it went right through the engine, out the exhaust. And as you drive down the street, you're putting lead into the environment. So we stopped. DDT was used raising cotton. You put it in a spray plane, fly it over the cotton fields, putting DDT into the environment. DDT was banned, we stopped. In other words, we now know that the only way to improve the environment is through preventing the production of the pollutant in the first place. A strategy of prevention is the only thing that works. You can think of the environmental pollution as an incurable disease. It can only be prevented. Now, let's think about what that means to the economic failures that are generated by the control strategy. See, we have these two strategies, control, prevention. Well, it turns out that what you're doing when you prevent pollution is to change the technology of production. We change the technology of producing gasoline. We change the technology of growing cotton. We change the technology of producing electric transformers by taking PCBs out of them. In other words, it tells you that the problem of pollution doesn't originate in the environment, it originates in the factories, in the cars, and on the farms. The chemicals that are now uh, in food and in our water supply come about by putting those chemicals on the soil in our farms. So we now can see that the problem of curing the environmental disease is a problem of prevention and that it requires us to change our system of production. You might say, well, that's a tall order. Can we do it? Yeah. Take, for example, the car. The control device doesn't work. Well, we now know why it doesn't work, because we have an engine that produces pollution. Is there an engine that doesn't produce pollution? Yes. The electric car does not produce carbon monoxide, no carbon monoxide, no nitrogen oxides, no pollutant. It has no exhaust. Well, can we do that? <clears throat> when I was a kid, the trucks that delivered your trunk from the railway to your house when you came back from camp, the railway express trucks, were driven with electric motors, and they had batteries. The electric car then is a way of preventing pollution. Well, you say, but we'll have to get electricity and the electric power plants, they're going to pollute. Well, is there a way of producing electricity not producing any pollutants? Yes. 
There is a device called the photovoltaic cell, which is on every one of your pocket calculators. And what it does is turn light directly into electricity. And people say, well, it's all right on a calculator, but the electricity is too expensive to compete with utilities. Well, let me tell you, next time you're in New York and you drive from Kennedy or LaGuardia uh, into town, just notice the emergency telephones along the road. It's a post with a yellow box in it and a square panel up at the top facing south. That's a panel of photovoltaic cells. Those telephones are powered by the sun. The electricity is stored in the, in the rechargeable battery in the cellular telephone inside the box, and that's it. Now, why do you suppose those were built? They were cheaper than laying the telephone and the power cable. In other words, that is a niche in which we can already save money by going photovoltaic. And let me very quickly tell you the economic savings that come about if we follow the environmental imperative of moving toward systems of production that are not polluting. One system of production that's not polluting is conservation, energy conservation. And you've heard a great deal of, about that. We could be saving, uh, certainly in electricity, 75 to 90% of the electricity by using the right kinds of bulbs, by having the right kind of insulation. Uh, there is a weatherization program, federal weatherization program. You have a vigorous one here in Minnesota. In New York State, a study we did for the state shows that the savings in fuel resulting from insulating the house and improving its energy efficiency over the 20-year lifetime of those measures in New York State means 48,000 new jobs about three-quarters of a billion dollars in new wages and a contribution of a couple of billion dollars to the economic output of the state. Why? Because the money saved by a poor family, these are uh, directed toward poor uh, families, the money saved by a poor family on buying energy can be used to buy food, clothing, books. In other words, instead of that money going to the Mideast or Texas to buy energy, that's where it goes, it goes into the local economy. In other words, conservation is an investment in the local economy. There are many other examples. Recycling is a way of preventing the production of trash. State of Massachusetts has just computed that their recycling program, which is not terribly big, has been increasing the value added to their economy by about half a billion dollars a year. And let me give you a very concrete example now. Our uh, research institute has been interested in this. And we, we got from the federal government information about what the federal government buys in the way of electricity. And we looked for one of these niches. Where is a good way to save money using our environmental sense? 
and we discovered that the federal government buys an average of $123 million worth of dry cells every year. They got a lot of toys that they need. Um, well, you know, people are buying more and more dry cells. Now, a dry cell is a very interesting thing, battery. You know, it's nice, convenient, carry it around, but it is very expensive. The most expensive uh, utility electricity in the country is in my town, New York, 15 cents a kilowatt hour. A lot. A dry cell costs you several hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. That is very expensive. Of course, it's convenient. But we said, now, that's a good target. And we worked out a system for the federal government. Um, they haven't done anything about it, but we told them. Uh, whereby, instead of using dry cells that you throw away, you use rechargeable batteries. Same size, do the same thing. And we're going to recharge the batteries with photovoltaic electricity. And we worked out the whole cost, two sets of batteries, so one's charged and the other's being used, the cost of the photovoltaic cells, installing it, and so on. And we came up with a figure of an expenditure of not $123 million a year, but $15 million a year. Now, that's money that can be used to invest in production. In other words, what I'm telling you is that if you understand that the environmental experience calls for a transformation in the way we produce cars, in the way in which we provide electricity, then you can see in that opportunity, you can see options for improving the economy at the point where the economy begins. Where is wealth produced? It's produced by production, not by taxes, not by interest. That's just money. The money reflects what we produce and the efficiency with which we produce it. The point I want to make is this. The environmental pollution that we have seen reflects the inefficiency of our productive system. Take the chemicals that, we, that are used on our farms. The farmer buys a certain number of pesticides, fertilizer, puts it on the land, and expects a return on that investment. And you can calculate it. How many dollars does the farmer make in profit per dollar spent on the chemicals? And it's a certain number. That's the economic productivity of agricultural chemicals. That figure has shrunk by 70% since 1950. In other words, it has become less and less productive. In the same way, that trillion dollars that we've spent on the control devices that don't work is money that could have been invested in factories, in bridges, in railroads. Think of it. $130 billion a year is what we're throwing away 
in a failed environmental program. Suppose you use that $130 billion to build new schools, railroads, to support a small factory that wants to make photovoltaic cells. In other words, the lesson that we learn is from the environment that there is a way to create an economic renaissance, an economic renaissance, a reconstruction of the productive system that we put in place after World War II, making it efficient and non-polluting. That is the lesson of our environmental experience. Thank you. You have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And our guest today is environmentalist Dr. Barry Commoner, who has been speaking to us about the environment and the economy, what works. At this point, I would like to invite those of you who must leave to do so, but we hope many of you will remain for our question and answer period. In a few moments, Dr. Commoner will return to the podium to answer questions from our audience. So if you have a question, I invite you to write it down on the yellow card that you will find in front of you on the pew rack and to hand it to one of the ushers who will come down the aisles. Today's questions will be sorted by Dan Ray and Wenda Moore. And now, Dr. Commoner, will you please return to the podium? And I'd like to begin with this question. Where should our research dollars be going in the next decade, and what issues should our scientists be dealing with now? I think the answer is self-evident. What we ought to be doing is research and development to create the new industries. Actually, we don't need to do any new research in order to get started. Most of the environmentally sound the production technologies <clears throat> exist. Um, all we need is a way of expanding their productive capacity. I might mention that when we did the study on photovoltaic cells, it turned out that to set in place this battery system, uh, the American photovoltaic industry's capacity, which is very small, would need to be doubled. It's well known that when you double the capacity of that industry, it brings the price of the photovoltaic cells down by a third. When that happens, there's a bigger market. And it's very clear that if the federal government just started with those dry cells, within five years, this process would bring the price of photovoltaic electricity down to the point where it would compete with utilities. So really what we need to do is to work out schemes of that sort. I should tell you that the research and development funding for solar energy, for energy conservation, uh, has dropped uh, enormously uh, since 1982 when Mr. Reagan came into office. And I think we all have to hope that with a new administration that will be turned around.
Many small businesses are at risk today. Do you think that small businesses as well as large corporations can increase production while remaining environmentally sound? I, that, the key, really, to the changes that I've been talking about lies with small business. Uh, you'd be amazed as to uh, the amount of air pollution produced by dry cleaners. And there's no question that the technology of dry cleaning needs to be changed. And there are such technologies. Right now, there's uh, experiments, experiments, a trial of a method that's been used in England that dry cleans clothes without any of the solvents that are so toxic. Uh, you use high-pressure steam on the spots. Uh, it turns out that you can get a, a clothing quite clean by simply putting it in a dryer and tumbling it and shaking the dust out of it. Well, uh, that's it. the other side of it is that a lot of the industries that need to be developed are small scale. Uh, for example, um, think of this. Think of a uh, neighborhood store that rents rechargeable batteries cheaper than those dry cells that you keep buying and throwing away, and that uses photovoltaic cells on the roof of the building to recharge them. I mean, there is a small business that will not pollute and, I think, make money. Thank you. Would you please comment on nuclear power and especially the following, uh, upcoming efforts to extend operating licenses of power plants, and efforts to temporarily store nuclear waste, what is wrong with that, and then international developments with the fuel cycle? Well, nuclear power is a prize example of an environmental mistake that turned out also to be an economic disaster. The nuclear power industry in the United States is near death. There hasn't been a new plant ordered since 1978, and many of the plants that were in progress have been canceled. Why? Because it turns out to be a stupid way to make electricity. It's very expensive and very dangerous. Now, electricity is great. It's a good thing. But do you need to have all that radiation when it can be made with no radiation, no pollution? In other words, uh, nuclear power represents an environmental mistake which, I have to say, has been reversed by popular pressure. It's very interesting. How did this happen? And some of us, and I'm sure some of you have been involved, in fighting nuclear power plant projects. You know, you say, no, this is a bad idea. Set up picket lines, have debates. And that's really what has stopped the nuclear power industry did two things. One is, these popular campaigns detected failings in the design of the power plants, that they didn't have safety devices. Most of the safety devices introduced were required as a result of public hearings. That raised the price enormously. The famous Shoreham nuclear power plant in Long Island, built at a cost of five billion dollars, was supposed to cost, cost half a billion dollars. It has never opened. <clears throat> it is now being dismantled. 
<clears throat> because the people of the state of New York said, we don't want it. And the utility people have gotten the message. They won't order any power plants. They say, what? We're going to get into all this mess? And besides, it's expensive. In other words, what this lesson teaches us is that the way to get the changes that I've been talking about is through what you might call <clears throat> eco-democracy, environmental democracy and economic democracy. That is, people, you and me, telling the power companies what kind of power to produce, telling the auto companies what kind of cars to produce. In other words, barging into the corporate boardroom and telling them what we want them to do. You commented on the spotted owl and timber industry controversy. What are your thoughts about endangered species and habitats versus the loss of jobs and industry? Well, again, um, what we have to do is deal with both the economic problem and the environmental problem simultaneously. Let, let's just say for sake of argument that um, if you wanted to save the spotted owl from extinction, uh, a certain number of loggers would lose their job. So <clears throat> which way do we go? Well, the answer is neither way. Losing a species is something that you can't reverse. Losing a job, well, that, you know, that's a social thing. People do it to each other. Well, what could we do? very simple thing. We say, okay, we're going to save the spotted owl, and so many loggers are going to be out of work. We will take taxpayers' money and set up a forest conservation program and hire the loggers who are unemployed to do that. We'll spend it, and in fact, what it'll do will be to preserve the, t the timber industry and the environment and the spotted owl. Instead, we set up this false dichotomy. Thank you. What are the other industrialized nations, particularly Germany and Japan, doing about reducing environmental pollutants? Well, unfortunately, we are the leaders in environmental programs in the, in the world. You, know, you realize that a lot of people are proud of that. In 1970, we started the whole thing. You remember Earth Day? That's when all the laws went. And unfortunately, every country in Europe and also in third world has followed our mistaken approach using the control strategy and with exactly the same results. I can give you the same numbers on air pollution from West Germany and England uh, and, and France as, as we have. Uh, it works out the same way. Now, I, I should tell you this, the strategy of pollution prevention has been discovered. I'd be a little modest about it. I gave a speech to the EPA staff in 1988 in which I laid out this whole thing. And much to my astonishment, a year later, the retiring um, administrator of EPA, Mr. Thomas, published in the Federal Register a detailed statement called the Pollution Prevention Policy. 
which EPA was going to adopt. And he cited just the stuff I told you about lead going down, that once you produce it, it's too late, and so on. Now, the problem is that this is now policy, except when there's a chance to do something about it, and then nothing is done. I'll give you the best example I know. Um, this has to do with trash burning incinerators. The way to prevent trash is by recycling it. And uh, on the West Coast, a proposal was made that the recyclable materials should be removed from the trash stream before it's burned. That would follow the principle of pollution prevention. And the West Coast District of EPA proposed to Mr. Riley that he issue, it's his discretion, a statement that the incinerator must take out all of the recyclable materials before it burns anything. He refused. He got a letter from the incinerator industry saying, you have no right to tell us how to run our incinerator. And he agreed to that. Now, of course, what he knew and what the incinerator industry knew is that if you took all the recyclables out, there would be very little left to burn. 80% of the trash can either be burned or recycled, and there are many incinerators now that were built without this in mind, and then the state developed a recycling program, and now these incinerators don't have enough trash to burn, and they have to import it. So that's an example. We do have a pollution prevention strategy on the books, but it's not adhered to at all. Foreign countries are beginning to pick up on it. Germany, for example, now has a law which requires every industry to take responsibility for the packaging that they put around their material. They either have to take it back or see to it that it's recycled. Um, that is, so there is, you know, truth is truth. People are recognizing now that a mistake was made. But the important barrier that we have to overcome is to understand that the solution lies in developing new industrial policy, a policy which says, here are the changes we want to make. And it means overcoming the resistance of the corporations to taking advice from the people from whom they make their money. Thank you. We have heard next to nothing about the environmental impact of the Gulf War. What is the environmental cost of making war in the 1990s? Uh, the, of course, there have been serious environmental problems, uh, but the way I would answer that question is what is the environmental impact <clears throat> of spending $300 billion a year on, on, the, on the military? That is money that ought to be put into rebuilding our economy in an environmentally sound way. And I think one of the shocking things that uh, is in the political arena now is that no one is taking seriously the fact <clears throat> that we're in a position uh, to uh, reduce our military expenditures enormously. As some of you may know, I ran for president in 1980. Uh, and I'm a radical, you know, I, let's, let's face it. 
And so I came out for a radical position, 50% cut in the military budget. Well, now, you know, people, ordinary people, <laughs> candidates are talking about 20%, 30%. They're getting there. Um, I think we can go even further. Well, my position now is 75%. I, I would reduce the military to the Coast Guard and the Marine Band. Thank you. What is the future of hydrogen as an energy fuel? Hydrogen is not a fuel. Keep that in mind. Yes, sure, it's a fuel. You can burn it. But people say, um, well, that's a fuel. We, we ought to get this fuel. In order to get hydrogen, you must expend energy. It's the only way to get it. It doesn't exist in nature. It is a very useful way to convert solar energy into a gaseous fuel. Very easy to do. It's a high school experiment. You run electricity through a salt solution, and at one electrode, you get hydrogen because it's taken from the water. And that hydrogen can be burned directly. There are cars that run on hydrogen. Um, <clears throat> or it can be made into uh, a fuel. And the great value of hydrogen is that it can be readily produced from solar sources and therefore can become a, a way of facilitating the transformation to solar energy. One of the things that we have to think about in making these transitions is that you've got to do it stepwise. And without going into details, a very important step is to emphasize gaseous fuels because there is a gaseous fuel, which we now use, natural gas, methane, which is also a solar fuel. Methane is produced by um, treating sewage in the absence of oxygen. Uh, and in fact, you can get methane from treating sewage on cattle feedlots. And in fact, for some years ago, there was a feedlot in Iowa that was producing methane from the manure and feeding it into the natural gas pipeline from Texas to Chicago. And people in Chicago were partly on solar energy. Because don't forget, you and I operate on solar energy, food, so do cattle. So that a gaseous system is one that can be gradually converted over to a solar system. And this talk of feeding some hydrogen into it, that could work. There's some problems. Hydrogen is, is difficult to hold on to. It'll go right through steel. It, it's a very small molecule, and it finds its way. So it's, it's hard to handle, but it could be a very important way of facilitating the use of solar energy. DDT is not entirely banned. It can be found in pesticides and insecticides used in gardening and lawn chemicals. And it is also sent to other countries to be used on crops, which are then shipped back to us in the U.S. Would you comment on this? Well, <clears throat> if you find DDT in a gardening insecticide, uh, you better call up EPA. It's not supposed to be there. 
It's been banned. For a time, it has been shipped to other countries. And one of the crimes of our environmental program is that as we have banned things in the United States, uh, the same companies have kept producing them and shipping them to third world countries uh, where there is uh, much more um, lax <clears throat> environmental controls. Um, I, I think that uh, the, whole, the whole issue of our relationship to third world countries is deeply embedded in this. And I just want to say that one of our responsibilities as the leader in this arena is to develop new environmentally sound systems of technology, photovoltaic cells, electric cars, and make them readily available to third world countries. So that, because they are so badly in need of elevating their economy. You, now, with ordinary cars, as more cars are used, more trucks, they pollute their environment more. Clearly, they are the ones most in need of breaking this link, this, this conflict between the environment and the economy. And I think this is one of our responsibilities to third world countries. Remember, the predicament that they're in is our responsibility. There's a word that nobody mentions anymore, colonialism. The exploitation of these countries by every industrial country in the world. That is what has put them into their present predicament. I think we owe them reparations. Thank you. Next question. How extensive is the research on chemicals like NutraSweet before they are released to the public, and how at risk are today's consumers? Well, uh, this has been a big bone of contention. Uh, because so much of the research is done by the manufacturer. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration really is incapable of studying all of the chemicals that are being proposed uh, that go into food directly or get into food accidentally. For example, one thing I happen to know about is the business of the migration of chemicals from plastic food containers into the food. There's been a study, for example, of yogurt which is packaged generally in plastic. Styrene, which is a component of many of the plastics, which is toxic, is known to migrate into the yogurt. FDA has done nothing about it. Uh, take another thing. Uh, my family, we like to use uh, safflower oil. Well, it used to be in glass bottles. Glass is inert. Plastic has in it chemicals, made of chemicals, that tend to be soluble in oil. Now you get practically every oil is in a plastic bottle. As soon as we take it home, I put it into an empty vodka bottle. Uh, and incidentally, now you can buy vodka in plastic, which is crazy because alcohol will dissolve the chemicals out. Now, I, I tell you, there is a really serious problem about the migration of chemicals from plastic containers into food. I don't know of any work by the Food and Drug Administration to really come to grips with this problem. That's the kind of situation that we're in.
Thank you. Uh, we have time for one more question. Would you please comment on the Clinton-Gore and Bush-Quayle environmental policies? All of them, together? <laughs> well, uh, I think that the Bush-Quayle ticket will simply result in the continuation of the policies that have brought us where we are, not only in the economy, but in the environment. I think that's absolutely clear. The whole thing that happened to the country's environmental program when Mr. Uh, Reagan came into office, and I saw this talking with uh, EPA executives, suddenly these scientists discovered the free market. Everything had to be done by the free market. We're going to trade pollutants. It's uh, on the stock market now in Chicago. You know, a crazy thing to do, to produce pollutants so you can trade them, when the idea is to prevent the production of them. And what we saw in Washington, I think, is the degeneration of programs like the EPA and many others. Housing, welfare, health, for the sake of an ideology that made no sense, namely that what private capital wants to do is always right. So, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the entire program, Mr. Bush has inherited that program, and Mr. Quayle is one of the leaders of the, of the suppression of every attempt on the part of EPA to move in the right environmental direction. The Quail's Competitiveness Council has dictated, dictated to EPA. At one point about a year ago, Mr. Riley, the head of EPA, was willing to say that no incinerator, trash burning incinerator, could be built unless it, re it recovered 25% of the recyclable material. That would allow it to function, more or less. And he proposed that. The Quail Council said no, and Mr. Riley backed down. So, uh, I was going to say I don't think much of the Quail Bush environmental problem. That's wrong. I think a lot about it. I think it's awful. Uh, let, let me get to Clinton Gore. Now, Gore, you know, has written a book, and it's an interesting book. But the most interesting thing I find in the Clinton-Gore campaign is that you get a strong sense, well, that's a little too strong, a fair sense, that Mr. Clinton is willing to consider industrial policy. That is, he is willing to accept the idea that as a nation, we ought to make decisions about how to restore our production system and re revive the economy. That is the most important thing politically that this country has to do. Let me tell you, my sense of it is that what the Reagan-Bush politics has done is to kill the idea of making policy. 
any policy, good, bad, or indifferent, you're supposed to do nothing because the guys at the country club are going to make the right decisions. That is exactly their policy. Every now and then somebody would mention industrial policy. Not saying what it is, just the idea of an industrial policy, and Bush has been quoted over and over again, oh no, we can't do that. That's the prerogative of the free market. Well, I hope that these signs in Clinton's campaign, that he is willing to go back to the old idea that the reason why we have a government is to do things that we as individuals cannot do for the benefit of the country as a whole. That's the idea. That's called civilization. <laughs> Mr. Reagan and Mr. Bush keeps telling us we've got too much of this civilization. You know, uh, let the gorillas out there do it. I have nothing against gorillas. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, the point is this, what we need in our politics is to return to the idea that we have a government for the purpose of creating policies that we think will support human welfare. We may make the wrong decisions, but at least we ought to face the responsibility of making decisions of having policies that will help the country restore the kind of economic strength that it once had. Thank you.